Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. Hi, I'm Ann Diaz, and I'm here to talk about Serve, Revisiting a Century of American Legion Auxiliary Cookbooks. If you like this podcast, please be sure to tell a friend. I'm always looking for new people to enjoy cookery by the book. Now on with the show. Growing up, I was familiar with the American Legion Hall that was located in Overland Park, Kansas. And bingo and wedding receptions were the only things I knew about the American Legion. But it's so much more than that. Many of us don't know the story of the American Legion. Could you give us a little history? Okay, yeah. So most people know that the American Legion is a patriotic service organization that's been around for a long time. It did start in 1919, following World War I, when it was observed that returning veterans needed a place to share memories and the challenges of war uh, with each other. And so Congress actually authorized the formation of the American Legion. Today, there are more than 2 million members, which we call Legionnaires, and I think 13,000 posts worldwide. So including the United States, also France, Mexico, and the Philippines have Legion posts. But, you know, it's really more than a social club. The Legion also offers benefits to veterans. It advocates for veterans. And it's also a place for veterans to continue serving their communities. A lot of them are service-minded. They work with youth. You've probably heard of Legion baseball. They also have shooting competitions. They have scholarships and oratorical competitions. And there's also a program called Boys State and Boys Nation. There's also Girls State and Girls Nation. It's for juniors and seniors going to be seniors in high school to learn about leadership and citizenship training. So they do a lot of things that people don't always know about. They were also behind um, the startup of the VA, and they wrote the first draft of the GI Bill back in 1944. It was called the Servicemen's Readjustment Act back then. Since that time, more than 8 million veterans have gone to college with that bill. So they do a lot in our communities. So the American Legion Auxiliary celebrated 100 years last year. Tell us why the Auxiliary was established. Okay, so the Auxiliary was established just shortly after the Legion. As you can imagine, the women who were left behind during wartime, they were busy folding bandages, stretching resources, picking up the slack. So they were not about to be left behind when it came to ongoing support of veterans and community service. So Congress also agreed, and they chartered the American Legion Auxiliary the same year that the American Legion was started back in 1919. Our unit which is called Unit 1879, is the first one to be affiliated with the college campus. So that's really cool. Our mission statement for the auxiliary talks about the spirit of service, not self. We're here to support legionnaires and all veterans, active duty service members and their families. There's a lot of fundraising that goes on, oftentimes around food, right? Cookbooks, pancake breakfasts, <laughs> bake sales. We also educate youth on citizenship and the military. And uh, we have a poppy program that recognizes veterans and raises money for them and gives us an opportunity to connect with veterans. You've seen the poppies. They're just like little red and green paper poppies that we hand out to veterans 
take donations if they'd like. It's a fundraiser, but it is a way to connect with veterans. There's quite a bit of setup for this interview. So first, can you describe how this cookbook, A Labor of Love, came about in 2017 and your involvement? The seeds of the idea started as part of my grad school project, but it really became more powerful as the auxiliary got involved. My auxiliary sisters in Unit 1879 really brought it to life. But the backstory, I think, is important, too. So I was bothered by the number of veteran suicides and started researching what's known as the civilian military gap, the disconnect that we have today in understanding veterans because we have a lot fewer connections to the military today. Less than 1% of our adult population serves, where compared to after World War II, where 12% of the adult population serves. So there were a lot more family connections. People understood the challenges. So it's easy to stereotype what we don't understand, and it's definitely hard for us to support what we don't understand. So that's the civilian-military gap. And I made my way to the local Legion post, wondering if bingo was really like the only way that I could get to know some of the veterans (laughs) there. And they invited me inside. And I wasn't really prepared for that. But suddenly there I was sitting with about a half a dozen veterans from the Korean War, from the Navy. And so I thought, wow, okay, this is my opportunity to, to get to know them a little bit. And, you know, I realized I didn't really know how to engage in conversation. I didn't know what to say. So I realized I was part of that problem, part of the civilian military gap. So I went home and I brushed up on my military literacy. I did some research and I had conversations with veterans, with 22 veterans over the course of about five months. And the conversations were so diverse, surprisingly diverse. And really the only commonality, I think, was that we were conversing around food. So that was kind of one thing. But it was really transformative for me. Any stereotypes that I may have had about patriotism or supporting veterans was kind of shattered in that process. And at the same time, I was reading a book of essays called See Me for Who I Am. They were student veteran stories about war and coming home. And there was this line that caught my attention, a student veteran by the name of Jeffrey Norfleet. He wrote something like, I'm a walking discovery channel. Ask me about the cultures I've seen. Ask me about the foods that I've eaten. Ask me about the countries and the people and the nightlife. And I thought, wow, that's like, that's really interesting. I could have a conversation about that. So the simple idea of food just kind of kept popping up. The idea of the old spiral bound auxiliary cookbooks. I kept thinking about food. I kept thinking, am I out of my element trying to, you know, write about the military? I really don't know anything about the military. Why am I not writing about like food. (laughs) And then I realized that that was really kind of the bridge, this idea of food and cookbooks and food stories, which is something really that women in the auxiliary have known for generations, right? Show up, bring food, listen, simple, really. So my advisor at CSU and I just started imagining this historic cookbook, like how it could be a vehicle for increasing military literacy. And then I realized that there was an actual auxiliary unit right there on our campus. And so I met with them, I shared that idea, and I realized that I was eligible to join because of my father's service, and he's a member of the Legion. This was in 2017. So we had two years because 2019 would begin the 100th anniversary of the organization. So the ideas kind of started to to pour in. 
collect a vintage cookbook from, it has to be one from at least every state from every era. And we're going to, we're going to start with that. We're going to glean through for recipes and interesting tidbits, but we have different skill sets. We have Deborah, who's a retired nurse and Jen, who's a registered dietitian and Rachel, who's really comfortable with technology. She's younger and she's like, said, I can help with the online part of it, the e-commerce and the fulfillment. Um, we have another Rachel who owns a cleaning company. So identifying the interesting household tips throughout the books. We have Karen Baylor, who is a former school principal with a huge servant's heart. She's been involved with the auxiliary for decades. She was co-project manager with me. Um, she researched and wrote the histories and many of the food stories for the book. Sharon is a customer service expert, so she she's really organized, and she did our bake sales and helped choose recipes. And we just had this great collaboration of skills and talents. I'm, I'm a writer and editor. I took a class in InDesign so I could design the book because I had a vision for what it should look like that allowed us to self-publish it and save a lot of money so we can donate more for veterans. I wanted to have you on the cookbook podcast because today is Veterans Day and mm -hmm. I want to shine the spotlight on what war means and the sacrifices paid. And I wanted to note that the American Legion family must be non-political. Um, mm -hmm. So this is about serving our country and honoring a legacy. Over the past couple of years, as you said, you've been collecting American Legion Auxiliary cookbooks. Where did you find all these cookbooks? <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a good challenge. We were really determined to collect one from every state or department, they're called in the, in the Legion family, and covering all eras. So Discovering that one really did exist from 1919 was really the jumping off point for the project. While it was still in the research stage, I did an online search and found a reprint of a book from Eureka, California, from an auxiliary unit there in 1919. So that was the, okay, this is going to work sort of moment that they're out there from that far back. And a lot of Google searches followed after that eBay, Amazon, just general searches, Kitchen Arts and Letters in New York City, tracked down about a half a dozen books for us. Oh, that's so nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. And um, some of the online vendors, like a 1920s book from Seymour, Wisconsin, it's a leather cover with gold embossing on it, and they wanted $90 for it. So I wrote and told them what the project was about, and they gave us a really nice discount. We did that a couple times. But all of our ladies reached out to their friends, made personal phone calls. So everybody really did their part. And Karen, who I mentioned, our unit president, her Rolodex is like a who's who of people in the auxiliary. And so she started reaching out to people and she got us some 1920s books from Idaho that are canvas covered binder style cookbooks from the 1980s. She has friends in Alaska and Hawaii. So those hard to find books. She helped us with those. The 1919 recipe is the oldest recipe in this cookbook. What's that dish? Yeah, so those are Clifford Tea Cakes. Isn't that just a charming old name? Clifford Tea Cakes. Yes. Um, you just think of like 
doilies and fancy china. But really, it's like an icebox cookie. You might remember icebox cookie. It's almost got like the texture of a biscotti, which people enjoy today. So we wanted it to be a contemporary looking book to bridge those generations. So you're not going to see the photo of it on grandmother's china. It's going to be something a little bit more contemporary to kind of illustrate that, hey, these are things that maybe your great grandma made, but you would enjoy it today. Some recipes will say like 15 cents worth of ground pork or to cook it in a warm oven and it won't say any amount of time. So we had recipe testers figure all of this out for us. Um, we had about 75 recipe testers, including our ladies, um, across the country who volunteered. But we, we paged through all these vintage books once we collected them. And we identified, put on a spreadsheet, over 600 recipes that were interesting for some reason. So we sent out the original format of them. And people had to figure out, like, what do some of these things mean? And they filled in the gaps. And, and we said, you know, make it a little bit more contemporary. People might not use oleo or lard or whatever. Like, what would you use today? We want it to be a book that people will use. They did that. They sent us detailed notes about what they did. They took photos and then we retyped the recipes that made the cut. And then we sent those out again to another set of recipe testers to make sure that it still made sense and that it was going to work. So every recipe has been tested twice. And then below the title of each recipe in the book, we credit the original contributor and the book title that it was from and the year. So that really connects us to the past. And I love that you put some of the recipe tester notes in the cookbook and you call it overheard in the test kitchen. I thought that was super cute. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's kind of like marginalia, right? Like the stuff that you'd maybe scribble in your cookbook. I noticed that most of these recipes are comfort foods and comfort food was so important to the military that the U.S. spent I couldn't believe this, $1 million in 1945 to convert a barge into a floating ice cream factory. Can you just talk a little bit about comfort food and the connection to home? So it's been said that an army marches on its stomach. That's an old saying, I suppose, with a lot of truth to it. So comfort foods were important um, and still are important on the military front. It's good for morale. There are some fun stories in the cookbook. There's one about the Hershey's company. So the military, I think this was also during World War II, that the military commissioned the Hershey's Corporation to make a candy bar for field rations. Did it taste funny? Oh, yeah. Apparently it took um, many tries. Yeah. Um, they didn't want it to taste that great. Those were some of the criteria. They said it, it had to be small, four ounces, so that it would fit in their rucksacks. It had to withstand the heat of the Pacific Theater. Um, it had to be high in energy, and that it should taste only slightly better than a boiled potato, so that the troops wouldn't <laughs> overindulge. <laughs> but then it got to the point where, I think they got better with the recipe, to the point where some service members would like trade their cigarettes for um, the chocolate, because they really wanted the chocolate. My dad was in the Korean War, so my mom used to make SOS. Your recipe in the cookbook is from the official USMC Food Service Association recipe from 1952. I didn't realize there were so many different versions of this recipe in different branches of the military. For those who aren't familiar, can you describe this recipe? Yeah, so it's like a 
toast covered with a white sauce that either has ground beef or chipped beef in it. And my stepdad says when they made the chipped beef, that's when we'd go out for pizza. Like that, that was really bad. The chipped beef was awful. Um, but he also thought that, that in the Navy, there was more of a, a tomato base to it. So yeah, it was different in different branches of the military, different recipes. We didn't expect to find that recipe. It's not one that women would would have passed down as the pride of their kitchen. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But we were just talking about it and uh, started looking for it. And then a cookbook from Tennessee showed up in the mail. And lo and behold, this recipe from the Marine Corps, this official recipe was in there. So Carrie, one of our members, called the local tavern and said, hey, would you guys be interested in making this SOS on Armed Services Day a couple years ago and served it free for veterans who came in. And so veterans came in, they got a free meal, they got to reminisce a little bit, and we got to hear some of their stories. So that was pretty cool. Could you tell us about the threefold mission of this cookbook? So the first part of our mission is to honor the legacy of these women that have served for 100 years. The second is inspiring conversation, equipping people with tools so they kind of understand the wars that we've been involved in and give them some ideas for conversation about simple things like food. And the third is supporting mental wellness for veterans. So this is, of course, a fundraiser. We're donating nearly 100% of the proceeds because most of our costs were covered either by sponsors or work that we did ourselves. So we're donating proceeds to mental wellness programs for veterans. A lot of the creative arts, the auxiliary uh, collaborates with the VA on a national veterans creative arts program because that's really good for mental health. And we've also helped publish a book of essays written by veterans in our area. So those are uh, just some of the things so far and we're, we're just getting started. Now to my segment called Last Night's Dinner, where I ask you what you had last night for dinner. Um, We actually made a nice big pot of beef burgundy. It's a recipe in our cookbook, and it was delicious. Uh, It was missing the homemade bread, but I'm cutting back on carbs right now, and my grandma would be really disappointed in that, (laughs) but it was delicious beef burgundy. (laughs) Where can we find this book on the web and social media? On the web, it is alaservecookbook.com is our website. And we also have a Facebook page under the same name, ALA Serve Cookbook, where people can find us. They can find us at Kitchen Arts and Letters and some stores in Colorado, but that information is on our website. I think if we all lived by the motto, service, not self, our world would be a much better place. Today on Veterans Day, we give thanks to our service members and veterans. And thank you, Anne, for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thank you, Susie. Subscribe over on cookerybythebook.com. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book.